Do government funding competitions raise the ambition of places or divert them from the changes they really need? Do they raise the standard of placemaking or impose a place-blind uniformity on local economic development? Could radical reform of public funding or real enhanced devolution for local economic development unleash potential in places or do local leaders always just have to make the most of the government system for their priorities however flawed the specific government mechanism of the day is? I'm Mike Spicer and you're listening to LED Confidential, the podcast that tries to lift the lid on those intractable and enduring challenges facing those of us working in and on local economic development and placemaking today. And I'm David Marlowe. Join us in this, our fourth episode, as we ask, is local economic development primarily about winning the latest government funding competition? And we're recording this as many LED and placemaking teams are working frenetically to complete the levelling up fund round two bids or their UK shared prosperity fund investment plans, perhaps alongside still trying to complete their negotiations and early stage delivery of the last round of funding awards, whether that's Towns Fund, Future High Streets, levelling up fund round one, community renewal fund or many others. And all that while still trying to build a case for future enhanced evolution agreements or new style county deals. Mike, you know, I I know we've spoken about this before. It took government over five years to decide what it wanted its UK successor to European structural funds to be. And then they required local leadership teams, mainly combined authority or local authority led, to produce over 300 local investment plans to two different timetables over three different types of applicant geography in around three months. I get tired just thinking about it. How on earth did we end up with a system, if I can even call it that, like this? Well, that's a, that's a very, that's a huge <laughs> question. But, you know, you know, I think a lot of it actually traces back to the politics of the early 2010s and the first years of austerity in UK public spending. Um, so when you think back to when the subnational agencies with fixed budgets were axed, this left huge holes in LED where funding and strategic leadership used to be. And so challenge funds and area-based initiatives were created to sort of plug the holes uh, in those gaps. And it allowed political leaders of that time to say, look, we're still investing in economic development, but at the same time, we're cracking down on what in their analysis was wasteful uh, public spending via uh, public bodies. So if you take the Regional Growth Fund, for instance, which replaced um, the RDA single part, it was much smaller than the single part, but it allowed government to direct the awards to places and to projects in ways that would have been much more difficult using a core budget approach. And there was, of course, a more visible thread between the politician and the project as it was being uh, awarded. Competitions create winners as well as losers. And of course, in certain times and in certain places, the politics of that becomes attractive to some people. So in summary, David, my simple take on it is I think government, and by that I mean both the elected government and um, Whitehorse civil servants, simply became addicted 
to that approach and that addiction got worse over time so it started with challenge fund competitions that were all about projects and programs then it progressed into funding for whole strategies and then it sort of reached its apex with local growth deals which were a competition not just for funding but for powers so SPF the the shared prosperity fund it isn't a challenge fund and in that sense it rebalances things away from competition in economic development funding but I think that partly explains why it's been so messy and the whole process has been so fluid and unknowable because it it does represent quite a big change from what has taken place over the last 10 years which has been a sort of hodgepodge of challenge funds and area-based initiatives it feels like we're almost starting to head back a little bit to that approach that we used to have over a decade ago where you had these kind of large large budgets an element of planning involved uh, as well but as you quite rightly say david there's a lot of legacy in the system there are lots and lots of little pots of money here and there which are still there and so the whole picture becomes clouded and messy uh, that's my that's my take on it yeah i mean i i see where you're coming from i'm not sure and it'll be interesting to discuss this further whether shared prosperity fund really is a switch back towards greater core funding in the long run. I mean, for a start, it is at a much, much lower level than the funding from Europe that it was supposedly or purported to replace. Secondly, it it presents a very, very large menu, but it still leaves ultimately government to decide whether your particular choice of menu is the one that's going to be preferred by them. And thirdly, I mean, it is sort of very, very fragmented with some extremely small amounts of money for actually some quite big economies at district level uh, where there isn't a combined authority or a mayorality. And I suppose finally, it still leaves begging, actually, I think, the question of how the relationship with, between national and devolved administrations in the nations is going to play out. So whether it is a big change, I don't know. I think we're really lucky that we have a guest joining us today who can actually bring a lot of insight and experience to these types of issues. I mean, I'm genuinely thrilled to welcome Sandra Rothwell to LED Confidential. Sandra and I have worked together on and off for at least, well, for over a decade. From uh, she, she was at one stage when I first met met you, Sandra. You were in the uh, Southwest Regional Development Agency, then head of economic development in Cornwall, then chief executive of the uh, local enterprise partnership, and now running Rothwell, specialising, I think, in rural and peripheral innovation and economic growth. Sandra, welcome. We're delighted to have you here with us. I mean, what have you made of what we've been talking about so far? And where do you want to take the conversation? Brilliant. Oh, thanks both. Um, really great to be here. And I'm looking forward to the, the conversation over the next half an hour or so. Yeah, just fascinating listening to um, a summary of Actually, for anybody that doesn't know economic development, it sounds like actually quite a bonkers system when you describe it in that way. And certainly, if not bonkers, then very messy and probably as 
frankly messy as I've known it um, in you know all the time that you've described, David. That um, I've been, been working on this agenda. I think the other the other thing I'd say, just in reflection on some of that, and I mean I have to say for for one moment, I do not think that the shared prosperity fund is anything like. Uh, a replacement for the European structural funds. I think it's something very different. Um, and if you look at certainly some of the the menu of interventions, I mean, it, it isn't really that open ended. You know, you choose from a list of interventions, and if those things don't quite suit you, then you've got to have a really good case for what else you might want to do. I think I'd also say, certainly in terms of the, the focus of the fund, it's not particularly getting under the skin of economic development. It's quite broad when you look across the kind of the whole communities, place, business, people and skills agenda. And for many places, the the people and skills issue, which I know for certainly a lot of businesses, if not a lot of areas, is the number one issue. But actually, it's some years before areas can really tackle the people and skills piece. So Yes, it it is kind of less of a challenge fund, but it does, I think, feel relatively restrictive. And I think the biggest thing for me, and it, and it come, comes back to, to your point, Mike, around, you know, that whole piece about planning and being able to step back. It's not for very long. OK, it's three years, but it's three years only if you're able to identify opportunities that were retrospective back from April of this year. So for many places, it's probably going to be much less than that. Um, and... I think the challenges of getting something up and running in this very short space of time is going to be difficult for many places. So, I mean, in terms of your question about, you know, perhaps where to take the conversation, I think for me, really understanding and having a you know a discussion around what does this mean for local places in terms of how do you deliver what is you know, the primary importance around the levelling up piece, supporting business, you know, good quality opportunities for local people with this kind of bonkers or at least messy um, landscape that we find ourselves in. Yeah, that's certainly the uh, the uh, however many billion pound question. And I have to say, I agree with your analysis of, of shared prosperity. So do you want to come back, Mike, on in a sense, where Sandra suggested we go and why you think shared prosperity might be leading us back to a more core-funded future? I think partly, I mean, these things come in cycles, right? And and they're never neat. I think, as you said at the beginning, David, there's there's such a sort of legacy of the last 10 years or so of challenge fund pots that have been created devolution processes that have got funding attached you know when when you it's a it's a a very complex tapestry of various funding and 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 of course as is always the case when you have multiple pots and multiple devolution processes trying to make any sense of that is it's like trying to unscramble eggs you know so it it, it, but I, i do think that if you look at the Community Renewal Fund, which was intended, at least initially intended, to be a sort of dry run for UKSBF. It was there to trial approaches and projects and programmes that might be taken forward under UKSBF. CRF has almost nothing in common at all with um, SBF. They are entirely different programmes, written seemingly by different people, and they have almost nothing in common at all. One is a challenge fund in in the very traditional sense of that term, and the other is basically a plan-led um, system of fixed allocations by geography. 
so they're they're two very very different types now i i take the point that you know it, it doesn't quite get us back to a world where you have large subnational agencies with big core budgets and also there are elements of the european funding system that are not replicated within um, SPF, particularly the scale of it. You know, the lack of match funding requirements is an enormous departure. The fact that there aren't intervention rates set out in any detail or anything like that, the subsidy control element of this, which is the kind of thing that lawyers would look at more, more, more perhaps than, than, than we would necessarily. But, you know, th- there are some important differences there. But I think ultimately... Um, we're in a system of fixed allocations by geography, which in some important respects is closer than to the world that we had in 2010 than it is, is to the world of challenge funding and, and, com- and competitive bids into centrally held pots. So I, I, I don't think there's a neat delineation there, but I think, as I say, you know, when you look at where SPF could have gone to, if it had actually just extended CRF, it would have been a very, very different system. I think one of the things um, I found really interesting, you kind of make this connection between devolution and kind of opportunity to, I suppose, for places to be more in control of their own destiny to really target locally driven issues. I've been working recently in Wales. It's reminded me after spending quite obviously quite a lot of time working in um, an English landscape, just how different it is in the devolved administrations. And for areas, so for example, in Wales, getting to grips with almost re-engaging with London, because of course, a lot of the funds we're talking about um, obviously come from a kind of Whitehall dynamic. But for some of the devolved administrations, they haven't had that engagement with London for many years. And they are finding it very strange, very restrictive in terms of responding to whether it's levelling up process, even to a large extent, the the shared prosperity fund. And and for those devolved areas, certainly in Wales, actually using a regional approach rather than individual local authority areas. And just just working with a particular local authority there, having um, more experience working with the Welsh government, they're finding it very strange and, as I say, very restrictive in terms of what's required from a Whitehall perspective on responding to some of these funding opportunities. And I think, you know, it is quite interesting to to remember just that that different dynamic across the UK. And, you know, as we get into the Shared Prosperity Fund and, and levelling up, these are funds which are applicable across the whole UK. And I think that that's something I'd certainly forgotten about, really, uh, in terms of the different dynamic and how um, certainly the last decade has changed how the different areas of the UK have approached economic development. I, I suppose, I mean, you, you raised the point about devolution and you know me well enough to know that you know, if, if I'm about anything, it is about enhanced devolution. And in a sense, there's almost a prior question of why should you know, districts or even regions in Wales have to have a relationship with London, with London civil servants who think that they can, you know, sometimes second guess uh, their local areas about what their priorities and what their modes of intervention should be for local economic development. And I would actually throw that question back for English districts and cities and towns as well. 
Uh, and I think that always then begs the question of, you know, it's sort of fair enough. Government does have to have national objectives and it does have to have a means of trying to uh, assure itself that those national objectives are being properly taken account of in local investment plans, which it funds. So there has to be a balance struck. But I would still see, a bit like you, Sandra, shared prosperity, the balance is still very, very much on the civil servant side. And actually that they've made a massive rod for their own back because with the best will in the world, where's the bandwidth to process 300 local investment plans coming in over a couple of months with, as you say, expenditure having to be agreed pretty quickly? Where's the bandwidth to do this with any genuine authentic sensitivity to the places that are making those proposals. I think that's right. And because it's not just in terms of that that change and this kind of process and system with um, the Shared Prosperity Fund, but there's a whole other dynamic we haven't touched on yet in terms of changes at the local level. So again, kind of back to the England side for a moment. Of course, all this has been going on while local enterprise partnerships have gone through a major review and um, at, at the local level as well, you know, I think for local authorities, so this is, I think, particularly in the majority of areas, so perhaps less so the combined authority areas or areas already looking at kind of um, devolution and, and well down that road. For many local authorities, kind of balancing all of this with actually one of the major actors who who done a lot of this work, <laughs> kind of un- unsure of their future, certainly no kind of clear role in any of this. And I think, you know, locally as well, trying to understand that the ability to be able to make sense of all of this at the local level, as well as, as you say, this kind of multi- multitude of smaller areas, perhaps lack of scale on some of the opportunities that whomever in Whitehall is going to have to kind of chunk through over the over the summer. It's It's going to be a real challenge. There's one thing, David, that you touched on in your in your provocations at the beginning that I thought it'd be good to sort of try and touch on, and that's this idea that for all of the messiness and craziness of the current situation with funding and all of the many contradict all of its many internal contradictions, in the end, if places do know what they want to achieve through economic development in a sense is it just an irritation and they can work with it or are their ambitions actually shaped by the nature of the funding system so we're sort of back to that that chicken and egg type dynamic aren't we so how important do we think that the actual design of the system is to the interventions that you actually get or is it all just sort of interesting for us to talk about but in the end places sort of just do what they want to do anyway? I think that's a really good question. It is one that I, I'd like to give a, an example, um, and then I'd like Sandra to come in with her experience, um, because I am convinced that the funding architecture or the funding system does moderate and distort local priorities to a much greater degree than even people who have a good idea of where they want to go. You know, e- even places that have really good strategic plans would like to go. So the example I'm going to give is actually pretty historic, but it 
it absolutely shaped what I think about these things back in actually 1991. And this was the first year of City Challenge, which in many cases was a precursor for challenge funding even to these days. Cities had to bid for funding from Hesseltine actually at the then Department of Environment. And at the time I was working for Birmingham, Birmingham put in a bid that was full of its ambitions as you know, second city in the days before Manchester had risen to leadership of the north or what what have you. And Birmingham put in a highly ambitious bid that was in fact rejected. And about, I think, maybe 30 places got City Challenge round one. So when City Challenge round two came round, which was only about six months, nine months later, Birmingham just went to the 30 or so places that had got success. They basically replicated the best bits of those other bids cobbled together something, stuck it in, and got approved. So it wasn't a, here's a second city European scales of ambition bid. You know, here here's something where we've taken a bit from this London borough, a bit from this northern Met, and it got approved by the then D of E. And I always remember uh, when we got the announcement, I was an assistant director in one of the director's uh, team leadership teams and we were all saying congratulations to the director who'd been involved in both bids and and uh, one of us said oh you must feel really great that Birmingham's got however many tens of millions it was and I always remember saying oh it's really odd David I've just come out from the chief exec and we were saying how do we feel about this whole thing and the word that we both felt was safe that they didn't feel proud, they didn't feel great, they felt safe because the political leadership wanted a funding tick. Uh, the fact that it wasn't nearly as good as what Birmingham really wanted to do was less important than getting the government sign-off. And it seems to me that the architecture does determine uh, what happens. And if, for example, a percentage of shared prosperity bids are sent back, what were the places who passionately believed in their bids going to do? They're going to look at what got funded and they'll say, OK, we better do that. I mean, is, do you, does that resonate at all with your experience, Sandra? It does. And, and I suppose maybe to add to that a little bit as well in terms of you know the, the reality of, um, I suppose, what's going on particularly in local authorities. Because you know, let's face it, most of the... Um, the work to drive this stuff is now within local authorities. You know, as I said earlier, you know, with the, with the let review and obviously what's come out of government, certainly in the levelling up white paper and so on, this stronger emphasis on local authorities um, leading economic development, and that's that's good and that's right and proper in terms of uh, local authorities' roles. But the reality is, for many local authorities, you know, they have if any, very few staff in their economic development departments who are already stretched beyond breaking point. Um, you know, it's not a statutory duty, economic development. So it's always one of the first things to, to get a bit of a cut. And, you know, <laughs> these opportunities come along, I think exactly as you say, um, 
elected members understandably want to kind of go for the opportunities and be seen to be leveraging investment into their areas. And, and, you know, I absolutely understand that. But, you know, the reality is most, certainly in my experience, even in some larger um, authorities, certainly don't have a pipeline of projects ready to go. And I mean, we all, you know, we all know this phrase from central government, particularly, oh, we want to see the shovel ready projects. You know, if if you're not one of the large metropolitan areas, you don't have shovel ready projects because nobody's got the time or money. Because I think that's the other thing that's often forgotten in these. It takes time and cost to get a lot of this stuff ready at risk. And that's really difficult and that's really challenging for a lot lot of local authority um, departments. And it's not just, you know, ultimately, it's not just the economic development departments. Everybody has to get involved in this stuff from finance and legal. Quite often property gets involved. And suddenly, you know, it's a big drain on resources, particularly on some of the the smaller local authorities. So, uh, you know, there's there's a lot of challenge going for this stuff, a lot of understandable... um, you know, de- desire to leverage investment into places, and that that's right and proper. And I think, you know, sometimes probably some of those council departments actually having a bit of rigor from somewhere else, knowing what the what the hoops are to jump through, sometimes isn't unhelpful, because uh, you know, as I say, that kind of pipeline of projects ready to go often isn't there. And to be honest, even a really clear strategy that's evidence-based and kind of ready to go for investment in some places isn't ready to go either. So this kind of, you know, I've seen, um, and they shall all remain nameless, but I've seen um, economic development departments who've said, we need to go for this funding. What have we got? Where do we start? We don't really know what to do next. And they've run around and with their hands on their hearts would probably say these aren't really the things that that we think we should be investing in. But they're what they've got that meets the criteria. And I think, you know, even with um, and and as you say, this kind of more slightly more autonomous feel to, to the Shared Prosperity Fund, it is still pretty prescriptive in terms of what goes in there. And at the end of the day, it's public funding and all public funding comes ultimately with a set of criteria in terms of how you can spend it. So, you know, can you really use that money in the way you want to do? Actually, probably not because of things like subsidy control or or whatever else it might be. And, you know, I think it, it is a really difficult position for particularly some of the smaller, less well-resourced councils to, to really make this stuff count. And, and I've got a lot of, you know, a lot of sympathy with and empathy, certainly, with, with the position they find themselves in as, as, you know, we face share prosperity fund, levelling up fund round two, you know, devolution by 2030, et cetera, et cetera. That's, that's a lot. I got a bit passionate there because I feel I feel for for colleagues in these places because no, no. it, it is just so difficult. You know, you you must be passionate. I mean, it, it's really interesting because when Mike and I were discussing this episode, I hope you don't mind me saying this, Mike. But um, one of the the sort of dummy titles that we came up with was, you know, is there ever a case for not bidding? for uh, government local economic development funding. And for all the reasons you've said, there will rarely be a case for local politicians to say, no, no, we're not going to bother with that. There's an opportunity, but, you know, 
take it. We're, we're, we're just not interested. But I think it does raise the question of what alternative systems should the sector be arguing for? And are there other instruments that have any chance at all of eventually being part of the next round of devolution settlements? I mean, where, where would you come, Mike? Have, have you had any time to do some thinking about that question? Yeah, I mean, the whole of my career, really. David. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I... I there's a there's a few things to say, I suppose. So one is that we picked up in in a previous episode, didn't we? That some of the instability in funding and organisations comes back to the fact that central government has a bigger role in economic development in England certainly um, than it would do in other developed countries and we had that discussion i think on a previous episode where we were just where we were saying you know if if you if you talk about this stuff with our overseas colleagues they're quite they they find it quite odd that government could stipulate in, in to such a level of detail how not only how you should be spending money but actually the organizational form through which that spending should be funneled when that that feels like it's not really a central government you know it, it isn't a responsibility of central government surely it, the responsibility of central government is a broad overstrike strategy and upholding financial probity through audits and, and so on and um, so i think that there's if we're agreed that probably a better world would be one in which central government has less agency over how um, in, in how local areas plan for the future um, and you know raise, you know and sort of articulate their ambitions in strategies and then and then um, fund those then for me a, 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 a better system would have to be based around a core kind of block grant within a reformed system of local government and a multi-year grant at that. I think in my ideal world, it would be five years, but I think within the constitutional realities of Britain, you'd be talking probably three to four years. Um, but it would be of that, it would be a, a kind of big economic development block grant, a decent scale where central government's role would be largely relegated to upholding financial probity, making it making sure it's actually spent on economic development, it doesn't you know disappear into adult social care or something. I think that that's I, I, you might call it a radical devo view, but that's kind of the the conclusion that I've come to over the years. I think. I mean, I'd, I'd wholeheartedly agree with that. I think that's absolutely spot on. And, and uh, a couple of things to perhaps add to that. So one, you know, obviously a lot of focus around kind of local authorities, but. Again, getting the scale right with some of these interventions for places that aren't in a devolution area or, you know, have limited choices in terms of who they might partner with. It's going to be really expensive to deliver a lot of this stuff. You know, share prosperity fund kind of 4% on, on management costs that, you know, it's it's going to take more than that to actually manage this stuff. So, again, getting the scale right um, on on some of the interventions and having the choice of how to do that and putting more choice in local hands. I mean, I, I know you can put joint bids in um, around some of the, the opportunities here, but I'm not sure how straightforward that is. And again, um, experience in Wales, uh, they're actually going down a, a regional route 
uh, for for share prosperity fund, which is quite interesting. But but I think particularly it's that that kind of flexibility for authorities to to manage those funds in different ways. And just just as an example around that, uh, in my experience, certainly in in the more recent times. I think it's one of the added value of local enterprise partnership, having a bit more ability to be innovative on how the funds were used. Um, I would have to say that that one of the best value for money um, opportunities using public funds was something called the Growing Places Fund, which was actually a loan based fund. And that allowed a much more kind of flexible approach to investment, particularly working alongside the private sector. But of course, on a loan basis um, with interest, that actually revolved. And actually, you know, you can really make kind of public money kind of sweat a bit harder if you you have that ability to be more innovative around how you use some of those funds. And I think, you know, grants, are you know, they are quite a clumsy way of investing, really. And, and I think, you know, the response often from the private sector is they just it is difficult to get your head around a grant sometimes you know you know you spend money for three years you come back in three years time and ask for a bit more well if it was that successful why are you coming back asking for more so you know again putting putting in some different uh, thinking and maybe being a bit more innovative a, a, around that and things like you know being a bit again I think there's some interesting um, examples like enterprise zones i know kind of the whole freeport thing has kind of taken over that but the the original opportunity around enterprise zones being a bit smarter with things like business rates and actually seeing this as a whole and thinking about investment portfolios for areas rather than here's a chunk of money it's going to go out in a grant when it's gone it's gone here's the things i'm going to spend my money on you know we hope that it's going to have impact in terms of jobs and prosperity and all of those other things um but you know, I know the government is putting more emphasis on being able to um, prove the impact of investment. But I think, you know, going back, I think the um, Public Accounts Committee uh, recently kind of went back to, to various Whitehall departments and said, you know, what impact have these grants actually ha- had? And many Whitehall departments couldn't actually um, prove the economic impact of those investments. And I think that's, you know, it really needs a good look at in terms of, you know, showing that impact showing that public money is really making a difference in places where private investment can't, but then also having that ability to be more innovative and just making it sweat a bit harder, frankly. Yeah, I, th- I think it's uh, really good that, I mean, we've already come up with three alternative models to the sort of micro central government led funding model, whether it's the reformed block grants, loan-based revolving funds, some sort of investment portfolio approaches. I mean, I would add to that, and uh, Mike and I are working somewhere that's really interested in uh, community wealth funds, you know, the the local equivalents of sovereign wealth funds, which, again, governments could uh, put in money and then let the communities go get on with it. Other countries have quite positive experiences with well-founded regional development banks, for example. So those are other ways that you can, you know, incept models that are more likely to give local flexibility. I suppose we are beginning to draw towards the end, but we're not there yet. Is there any possibility that there can be bottom-up proposals which are 
genuinely well collective bottom-up proposals that are genuinely welcomed by government so for example i mean i started off by saying yeah it took government five years to work out what they wanted shared prosperity fund to do but actually had government in 2017 asked let's say in england the leps if they if they'd have said Look, you just come up with your collective best guess at a system for replacing European structural funds. Would we, let's call it, let's say, let's say collective, uh, would we have collectively been able to have come up with a system that was credible and that did work better than what, what governments eventually come up with. And if we could have done, why didn't it happen? And again, I'll go back to one final example, which goes back to, um, the first, the, sorry, the second round of city deals, uh, which I think was about 2012, 2013, something like that, uh, where numerous cities were asked to replicate what had happened with the sort of core metro city deals in Manchester, Birmingham round one, uh, and so T side and so on, round one. And at the time, there was a network of cities called the Growth Cities Network of about a dozen different, mainly uh, southeast and eastern cities uh, that I was working for. And about seven or eight of them were invited to put in round two bids. And I went to them and I said, why don't we actually get together, actually also with the three or four that haven't been invited, and why don't Growth Cities Network go to government with this is what City Deal Round 2 ought to be? And we were just not able to structure a um, consensual proposition in the government timescales. So in the end, the six or seven put in their own separate bids and some got what they wanted, others didn't and so on. But, you know, how do we get to a stage beyond the individual mechanisms where local areas can collectively engage with government on these type of propositions, on LED propositions? I, I'm sort of, I'm a little bit sceptical of the idea that you could have a formal mechanism for um, kind of, you know, structured conversations around funding because they kind of, there already are mechanisms that are kind of designed for that. I mean, there are, of course, you know, membership associations like the LGA and others that give collective voice to stakeholders within the system, the LEP network, of course, with local enterprise partnerships. So there are there are various um, associations that, that do that and are capable of doing that. I think it's just whether or not there's, whether that aligns with a willingness and, and capacity within Whitehall to curate those conversations and often there isn't um and as i said i don't think it's anything more sinister than often just a lack of capacity actually it's a rather bit of bit of a depressing take on it but but, but that's kind of my view i think well, let's let's give sandra the last word then lift the conversation <laughs> i'm just going to continue that a little bit i mean i kind of i you know as, as you say Mike, i mean i really feel for the team that, that had the job of trying to do this that i had when I was still working in Cornwall, actually as part of a 
I don't know how you describe it really, maybe a, a team building away day. They, the team actually came to Cornwall. We um, we invited them to, because of the, the size of the Cornwall um, structural funds, we, we invited them to Cornwall to actually see how things were. We had a, you know, a number of sessions to actually share learning. What would we do differently? What might the new, new programme look like? And I have to say that um, the officials were, were really up for doing something innovative and, and actually, you know, trying to do something better but I think as you say Mike when it came to it and again it's easy to to forget some of what happened at the time but I think there were quite a lot of um, seat changes at ministerial level and I think there was never and again I think this is we underestimate sometimes how um, how important it is for ministers to champion some of this agenda as it goes through not only kind of the the home department whether that be um, leveling up or bays but you know it's got to get through treasury <laughs> which is no mean feat so you know I think uh, yeah the, the reality of all of that and and you know I think if um, any official or, or minister was on was on this podcast, you know, they'd say, well, we're, we've invited you to come back with ideas for devolution. Tell us what you want to do on devolution. And I think that would be the response. So, you know, let's let's uplift the conversation to say, you know, the, the ball's in our court locally to, to actually come back with, you know, innovative um, ideas around the, the kind of the investment functions under that devolution framework. Um, I appreciate, you know, for, for some areas, that's that's going to be a big challenge to, to land those devolutions in devolution deals, either at pace or in a really meaningful way. But I think, you know, that has to be the answer. Well, it's it's the only opportunity I think that's on the table at the moment to to really to really drive that forward. I think the only, the only other thing I just note, and we obviously talked about the kind of the the local authority level. I talked earlier around scale and the importance of economies of scale. The one thing we haven't touched on, and you know, I won't open up a, a, a long discussion on it, but is the importance of not forgetting that sometimes small and smaller investments can make a big difference on the ground for some for some communities and certainly again something in Cornwall that that we looked at as part of the the first Cornwall devolution deal was this double devolution so you know really thinking about different ways of working with um much smaller communities to make a a, a difference around that and who knows maybe that that's a an opportunity for a discussion on on one of your other um conversations uh, further down the line but yeah, yeah. yeah i think you know the, the balls in our courts locally i think to to really come back with those opportunities through the devolution discussions and you know some really great share prosperity funds investment plans she said hopefully just, I read. I don't want to throw in a kind of bomb at the at, at the end, but just a, almost like a, you a, always do, Mike. It's, it's, it's become my it's become my trailer. So I was I was just going to say that we mustn't forget either that the world of economic development is bigger, much much bigger than the kind of the constellation of of characters, including ourselves, who kind of work in and around the kind of the strategy and you know sort of planning end of it and and you know I've had conversations over the years with business associations for instance who I do a lot of work with who will say well you know your view of of what what paradise looks like Mike for uh, economic development funding is our idea of hell because it means that where are the safeguards frankly if we get a duff local leader that just kind of splurges it on 
a monorail to nowhere. What do we do then? Where are our safeguards? So I think that's another. That's probably the missing piece in a way, which is that there is, of course, across the landscape of economic development, a lot of people with legitimate concerns and 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 aspirations and will look at the question of funding in a different way they'll think well how does this work in governance terms what do we do if we have a leader locally who who doesn't share our our ambitions you know you know maybe we need some checks and balances in a system that perhaps is more of a balance between national and local in some circumstances might be might feel a bit safer than one that's purely local or purely national. Um, so I just wanted to, to fit that in there because I don't think I, I think it, it, it's always worth remembering that the conversation is, is a big one and it involves other people. And, and will keep us going for many episodes to come. <laughs> I, I think that's been a fantastic conversation. I mean, Sandra, thanks so much for joining us. It's been a pleasure to reconnect for me personally, but you've provided us with a lot of perception and insight. So thank you very much and uh, i'm david marlowe at thirdlifeeconomics.co.uk and i'm mike spicer and you can catch me on my website which is www.policydepartment.com just wanted to say thank you very much for having me i um, really enjoyed the conversation and gosh we could have gone on for it for so much longer but no absolutely if anybody wants to to contact me rothwellpoint.com at that point Please keep listening to LED Confidential and we'll be back with another episode in early August. Mm -hmm.